Welcome to the July 25th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. We're breaking through your screens and into your ears to give you a weekly dose of news, views, and reviews. This week, we'll be talking to curator Monica Frabianska about her exhibition this fall that grapples with how contemporary female artists in the United States have represented rape in their work. Then we'll talk to veteran arts journalist Barbara Pollock about her new book on contemporary Chinese art. But first, some headlines. Newly discovered mosaics at the ancient site of Hukok, near the Sea of Galilee in modern Israel, may change the way we see biblical and Jewish art during the late Roman period. Since 2011, archaeologist Jody Magnus of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill has led the project, and in 2012, they had already discovered incredible polychromatic mosaics that vividly depict various scenes from the Hebrew Bible. These mosaics, Magnus says, are possibly the first major non-biblical scenes discovered in an ancient synagogue, challenging the current scholarship around Jewish art during the period. You may be curious, as I was, as to who were these ancient artists. Other archaeological finds in the area have revealed Jewish mosaicists who were often related by blood and actively worked in the area around Galilee. But the artists here, they're still an enigma. Magnus talked to hyperallergic Sarah Bond and explained, We don't know who the mosaicists were. We're pretty sure there was a local workshop due to similarities with the mosaics at Wadi Hammam, another synagogue nearby. But it is also possible, according to my mosaic specialist, Dr. Karen Britt, that some of our mosaics, in particular the elephant mosaic, were made by non-local artists. The best part is, the excavations aren't complete, so we'll have to wait and see what else will be discovered at this important site. Come home from work, she's lying around on the couch, kids are dirty, there's diapers on the floor. Sometimes the kids is outside, running around, nobody watching them. Wanda Goronsky. Listen, Judge, if he wants a divorce, just give it to him. That film you just listened to is considered one of the greatest independent films of the 1970s. But when it was released in 1971, no one seemed to notice. Despite winning the International Critics Prize for Best Film at the 1970 Venice Film Festival, where it premiered, the film, titled Wanda, had little traction at the box office, and the critical reception was also muted. Dan Schindel, writing about Barbara Loden's film for Hyperallergic this week, pointed out the film was made with only $115,000 and a minuscule crew. Loden produced, wrote, and starred in the film, and the good news is, this year, you'll be able to see it in the theaters again. Today, the film is often heralded as a feminist masterpiece, but Loden isn't very well known. The reason is complicated. It's partly because she was always in the shadow of her more famous and egotistical partner, Elia Kazan, and also because her life was tragically cut short by her death from breast cancer in 1980. But Schindel points out another reason for that obscurity. He writes, like many female filmmakers for much of history, Loden was unable to move past a promising start because of a lack of perceived box office viability, even as her male peers were permitted multiple failures. This is her lone feature film, and it's shot in a cinema verite style that tells the story of a young mother in Pennsylvania coal country who drifts away from her home life to shack up with one of the least glamorous outlaws in cinematic history. 
a deeply personal work by Loden, who was herself a child of poor Appalachia. The idea for the film began, according to an interview published in 1971, when she read a newspaper article about a girl who had been an accomplice to a bank robbery and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. When the judge sentenced her, she thanked him. Pope Clement I has been dead for almost 2,000 years, but he's in the headlines in the last week because of what's believed to be a holy relic consisting of a bone fragment encased in a wax-sealed reliquary that was discovered by sanitation workers in London. Back in May, EnviroWaste discovered this unusual item and even turned to the public to determine what they should do with the object, since they couldn't trace the item's original source. Company owner James Rubin said in a statement, You can't imagine our amazement when we realized our clearance teams had found bone belonging to a former pope. It's not something you expect to see, even in our line of work. Last week, we reported that New York City's public libraries and 33 city museums were joining forces for the citywide Culture Pass NYC program. It allows library card holders to visit one of the 33 museums for free. It seems like the launch last week was so popular that 9,500 tickets were reserved and some institutions are temporarily sold out. But don't worry, a spokesperson for the program told Hyperallergic that a new batch of tickets are being released August 1st. The topic of rape and fine art doesn't often come up, but when it does, the artist most people often refer to is Artemisia Gentileschi, the Italian Baroque painter who was raped by her art tutor, Augustino Tassi. But curator Monica Frabianska realized there was something missing in these conversations. Where was the contemporary art? Soon after she realized that, she began researching and soon an exhibition was born. Her show opens this fall at CUNY's Shiva Gallery at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan, titled The Unheroic Act, Representations of Rape in Contemporary Women's Art in the U.S., includes all the bold-faced art names you can imagine, Jenny Holzer, Yoko Ono, Anna Mendieta, and Kara Walker. Because what she found was that almost every major female contemporary artist had a work that dealt with the topic. I invited her to Hyperallergic Studios to talk to her about her exhibition. Has anyone done an exhibition at this scale about a topic like this in contemporary art? Not at this scale, but there were two exhibitions historically about the subject of rape. Uh, the first one in 1984 or 85 in Ohio, mm -hmm. and the second one in 1993 that was done um, as part of independent program at the Whitney. And they were both, they could not be historical yet, so they had very different ideas behind them. So now, how does your exhibition, how is it different? How, how, what, I mean, it's certainly a lot of major names. I mean, you have everyone from Jenny Holzer to Kara Walker to Susan Lacey to Anna Mendieta and Yoko Ono. I mean, these are, it's quite an A-list list of artists. Yes, unfortunately, uh, we wouldn't like so many works about rape to exist, but sure. they do exist. Mm -hmm. And precisely that surprise that discovering this crack between 
the general narrative mm-hmm. uh, and what I found in women's art prompted me to, to work on that. Well, you ex- actually say that here that rape constitutes a, one of the central themes in women's art. Yes. So you see that throughout the history of modern yes. and contemporary art. Yes, exactly. I found out that it's not a marginal theme, that only a few artists who had personal stories uh, picked up. It's a major theme that is coming back in most of artists that we know. It's so present that it's beyond our belief. Um, and what's striking is that these are beautiful works. Some of them we know very well. Some mm-hmm. of them, some of them sold well. Some of them are in museums. Some of them we've seen and we've never realized what they really are about. The others we know, but we only know that splinters and pieces. We've never seen it as a, as a full picture. So the difference between this exhibition and the attempts before is clearly the historical perspective. Now we have 40 Mm. years of feminist art behind us. So without even looking into the early 20th century work, the earliest work that I know is 1907 engraving by Katha Kolwitz. But without even digging in a historical material, which has to be done in museums and looking at the post-war contemporary art, we can say that this is a subject that starts in 1960s and is constantly present in women's artists. And what I wanted to show is that all those great artists that we know um, has contributed to it and has and have found it very important. So the earliest piece you have is the Yoko Ono yes. piece, Rape from 1969, is that correct? 68. Mm-hmm. 68. And so you know, I don't know that piece so well, but it, in in a weird way, it's almost like a, a parallel to Vito Conchi or something, but in a very different direction, you know? It's a very good association. It's a, I'm still writing the catalog and actually Yoko Ono is the one piece that I haven't finished yet. Uh, it's a very difficult work. It's very challenging. It's Do you mind very, describing it for people who may not know it? Uh, it's a realization of a of her conceptual instruction it's a 77 minutes long film which is shot in london uh, and the the instruction goes the cameraman will chase a girl on a street with a camera persistently until he corners her in an alley so from today's perspective of the presence of cameras everywhere this this movie would not be possible to be made as it was made in 1968 the meanings there are so many liars. It, there is no one way to read this work. It has been right. interpreted by many people. And then the, bre- the end of that script sentence that you didn't uh, read is, and if possible, until she is fall- she is in a falling position. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about really making someone vulnerable. Yes, and it, it did happen. The camera chose in a, uh, a woman in the street of London, and they uh, chased her, and, and they entered her apartment after her, cornered her. Wow. And she start, started crying, called her sister. And it was a setup because uh, Yokono made a deal with her sister. So the sister knew about this. The woman didn't. Oh, wow. Uh, it's a very powerful work. But what is really important in it is that, in, in for me, in this conceptual instructions by Yokono, uh, even in Cut Piece, which is also interpreted as a work about rape, there is never said that you need to chase a woman. When you read the whole instruction, the whole instruction says you can chase men and boys as well. So for her, the situation of abuse of power is not really gendered. Got it. So there are so many aspects of this, uh, of the subject of rape. This is one of them. So what was the biggest surprise in the works you found? Was there something that you're like, wow, this seems to be misinterpreted or people are not understanding what this work is about, perhaps? Yeah, m- many, many cases like that, too many for this interview. But I, I basically was surprised each time and 
and I was surprised by the magnitude of of the subject. So I think that I was more that I choked most on the sentence that an American Indian artist wrote to me in an email. I don't know anybody who was not abused, either right. physically or psychologically. And after I read this, I really couldn't write for another few days. It was the moment that I had to rethink myself. My, my vision of the world changed during working on this project, I must say. What was probably the most surprising work? Maybe I, maybe I was surprised with the first one uh, that kicked the whole project off. It was back in December of 2014, way before New York Magazine published their cover with women who went out to accuse Bill Cosby. It was not on everybody's mouth yet. It was not a dinner conversation subject. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked my old friend, uh, Carolithia, who's an art writer, to show me her art from the time when she was an active artist. And I, among other works, which were shown publicly and they were great, there was this enormous installation representing a, a scene of gang rape. I've never seen anything like that. And I've only asked her, where did you show this one? Mm. And she answered, are you out of your mind? Nobody would have ever seen it, would have ever show, presented it. Mm. So the work was not shown. When did she make it? What era? Uh, back in 1992, I think, or three. Okay. And this triggered me. Mm. I came back home and walking home, I was thinking, why have I never seen a work about rape? There must mm. be other works of rape. I opened the computer, I opened the internet. And two days later, I... I had hundreds of works. Wow. So this was the surprise. So my interest in the subject came from a quite unusual angle. Right. It was my interest and my sensitivity to censorship. Wow. So do you feel like when works about rape are shown that that context is taken out? Is that actively sort of erased? Not always, but often it is. It is is smooth. It is hinted sometimes, but it is not discussed as, uh, uh, the works are not discussed are representing rape in, you know, in, in a direct way. And so what was it like curating this during the rise of Me Too? The conversation changed entirely. When I approached the subject first, uh, and I didn't even think of an exhibition yet, not even of a book yet. I was just testing it, and I told a few friends, hey, I found this, I'm, I think of, a, of, a re- of researching it more. And people really were drawing a circle on their foreheads. Mm. And that reaction that, why wouldn't you, oh, why would you even deal with that? This is sad. Why wouldn't you pick some more, you know, a nicer subject mm. or something more interesting? And these answers propelled me more into research. I asked her about her wider perspective on the issue and what she thinks this exhibition may achieve. What I'm interested in is not really rape. I'm interested in history of art. In history of art, we are taught at universities about iconographies of all the saints, Madonnas. Where is the story that is the closest to all women's heart and that is over-represented in women's ever collectively? We haven't talked about that. So what I care as an art historian, mm-hmm. I can't, I, I, I'm not an activist, I can't do anything with rape, but I want to change how we, how we teach art history and what we find in sure. women's work. Now, it must have been emotionally exhausting. I mean, I'm asking because, you know, we cover stories related to harassment and, and sexual violence. And, you know, I think people often don't understand how emotionally exhausting it is just to, 
listen and take in people's stories and understand and arrange them because you're dealing with incredibly sensitive material. Yes. In, and people are sort of revealing themselves in many ways and it can feel very vulnerable. Now, how was that experience? And even talking to the artists or dealing with this, I, I'm hoping you took a lot of breaks. <laughs> there, there was little time for breaks, but yes, there were moments when I just had to take a deep breath and, and think. Unwillingly, I became a secret pouch. I'm carrying so many secrets now. Mm -hmm. Some of them we can say, some of them we cannot say. This is a huge responsibility for a curator, much higher than when you usually curate a show and you, are, you may have an issue of the artist wanting to be represented this way and you think something else. No, here it is about respecting somebody's privacy and making a show that is decent representative for the culture, not just for your taste or not for this one artist. And combining all of these elements with all these stories that I've heard. And yeah, I heard too many of them. I bet. We discussed many individual works in her show, including Suzanne Lacey's Three Weeks in May from 1977. The piece features a large map of Los Angeles stamped in red with the word rape to indicate a rape that occurred in the city during that period. Each day, Lacey went to the LAPD's central office to obtain confidential rape reports from the previous day, and she stamped their location on the map. But Monica used this as an example to show how things have changed since that work debuted 40 years ago. If you said that you were raped, that only meant that there was something terribly wrong with you. Hmm. So nobody really revealed that. And what I think I learned from this project is that even in, if changing the culture of rape would be very difficult, what we can change possibly is unshame women. Hmm. And that should change the dynamic in general. At the beginning of the 21st century, there was a palpable craze for Chinese contemporary art, as Western collectors and curators were rushing to include work coming from the emerging superpower. That frenzy, dominated by the cliches of post-communist China, like McMao's, well, that was never really the whole story. So it's great to see that nowadays critics and curators are telling a more nuanced story of Chinese art. One of those people is Barbara Pollock, she has a new book on the topic, her third about China, titled Brand New Art from China, A Generation on the Rise. It features 55 young Chinese artists. And I asked her to stop by to talk about China's emerging generation of artists. How did you get involved in Chinese art? Because you've been a veteran journalist writing about all kinds of arts for decades now. Yes, in the 90s, I was one of a group of critics who were really interested in the periphery, an art from non-Western centers. So I was writing about art from Africa and from Asia, but it happened that a lot of the leading Chinese artists were living here in New York because they had left China after Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. So I met Tsai Kuo Chang and Zhang Wan and Xu Bing, and I thought their stories were fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to joke that you interview an American artist and they say, my dad was a doctor or a lawyer and I went to Yale. And you interview a Chinese artist and they're like, I lived through the Cultural Revolution. I was sent to the countryside for re-education. My parents were Very dispossessed different. of all their possessions. Very different life stories. And then in 2000, I went to China for the first time 
and I could see that a huge art scene was about to erupt there. Mm. So I began going really frequently, and now I go about four or five times a year. And so what has that experience been? Because you're an American critic going to China. I, I'm guessing there's, you know, people certainly want attention from the U.S. because the art world here is so large, but ha were there any conflicts in terms of being an, a sort of a foreigner coming in? Yes, I mean, um, very often I'm accused of being too Western in my approach to Chinese art, mm -hmm. which with the older generation, the generation that emerged in the 90s, that was a big issue. They would mm -hmm. often say, I could never get what their work was about totally because I had not grown up in China and because I was not thoroughly educated in Chinese history. Mm -hmm. But now with the young generation, which is what I'm looking at in my book, they really thrive in terms of a global vocabulary. And so they want to have a dialogue with me. It's more than just wanting attention from me. They really want feedback. They want to know mm -hmm. whether their work reads on an international level. And so I found this book just really exciting and enjoyable to do because instead of putting me on the defensive, they totally took me in, into their lives, and it was really fun. That's incredible. So you visited the studio of 100 artists, is that right, in yeah, China? Yeah, I, 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 the research took over five years, and I visited over 100 artists to begin with, and then about 55 have made it into the book. And what cities were you concentrated in? I was concentrating mostly in Beijing and Shanghai. When I began, I traveled all over China, but as I proceeded to do the research, more and more artists, if they were interested in having careers, they moved to places like Beijing and Shanghai. It's similar right. in the United States that people will move to LA or New York if they want to have a gallery career. So now what was the biggest surprise of those artists? A hundred artists, I mean, I'm guessing, uh, you know, all different kinds of artists. Yeah. Were there any huge surprise that people who visit studios in Europe or North America would be surprised about? Um, well, one is that's very surprising is we get a lot of press here about Chinese artists being censored. Mm -hmm. But instead of this group of artists feeling like oppressed and um, troubled by the censorship that goes on in China, they were very creative in their ways of getting around it and basically felt like if your work gets pulled from a show, that's the price of doing exhibitions in China. But it happens so rarely mm -hmm. that it, they didn't let it interfere with their art making. And I found these artists um, incredibly ambitious and um, ambitious about the materials they're using and the experiments they're trying, not just in terms of a career. Do you feel like New York and some of the major Western capitals are missing out on all the stuff going on in China? Or do you feel like there is a constant back and forth. Uh, the American museums are way behind museums all over the rest of the world. And a lot of that has to do with some leftover Cold War politics. Mm. And we tend to really still want to think of China as a repressive country, which it is. It is a repressive country. But in terms of There's a fixation art, on that. There's though. a fixation yeah. on that and a glorification of Ai Weiwei, who's a good friend of mine. I mean, I'm a great admir admirer of Ai Weiwei, but he's not the only Chinese artist. Right, he's sort of held up as this sort of, uh, the global brand of Chinese contemporary art sometimes. Right, and um, especially when I talk to these younger artists, they all admire Ai Weiwei, but they're like, we want to deal with other issues sure. than just political work or work criticizing the government, and we'd like people to be open to the issues we want to be dealing with. So who are some of these younger artists looking at? Or who are they reading or thinking about that, you know, 
listeners may be surprised. Um, you would be shocked. There's an artist named Sun Shun who mm-hmm. actually shows with Sean Kelly. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed him, he began explaining Heidegger to me and Foucault. And my translator, you know, did not have a PhD in philosophy, so she ran out of ability to translate all that he was saying to me. Mm-hmm. But he was like, his work is as influenced by George Orwell or Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. and um, this type of thing as Chinese landscape painting. So what do you love the most about going to China now? When I came up in the art world, the East Village scene was happening and there was a lot of energy. I think that it's hard for people who are entering the art world now to really appreciate what it felt like to be surrounded by that kind of do-it-yourself energy. And when I'm in China, because the institutions aren't fully developed yet, you have artists that are really, really doing a lot for themselves. And they're so optimistic. Mm-hmm. They're, and in a certain way, they're very sophisticated about the market and about their international relations and things like that, but they're not jaded. Got it. And so um, it's exciting to be around them. Sure, it's it very like energi- energetic. It's yeah. very energizing to be around them. So how do they support themselves, though? You know, oh, I mean, this is like the idea, like the age-old question. The is market like, there is so big that almost none of the artists that I interviewed for this book have a day job. Really? Really. So, so does it feel like the market's even better there for young artists? The market is much better there for young artists. That's why they're staying in China. Wow, that's incredible. So who are these people? Who are these patrons or collectors? Are they all local? Are they international? What, did you get a sense of any of that? Yes. Um, there, and I have a chapter in the book just on the new generation of collectors that are emerging. So just in the same age range as these artists are a generation of collectors that are often second generation billionaires. And That'll do it. And many of them are building their own museums. Right. So all of these museums need to be filled and all of these collections need to be filled. And so most of the artists I know have patrons supporting their work. That's incredible. Yeah, it's much better for young artists there. And production is much lower. It's much less expensive to produce. So you see artists taking on these incredibly elaborate mammoth scale projects and they're doing it at 30 years old. Incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you, Barbara. That was really interesting. And I, I'm sure everyone is going to check out your book, Brand New Art from China, A Generation on the Rise. Thanks Great. so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening this week and for joining us on our latest podcasting adventures. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Garen Geikian, and Vincent Villega, who was kind enough to allow us to use his music in this episode. We're eager to feature new bands and music on every episode. So if you or anyone you know would like to submit music to be featured, email us at hello at hyperallergic.com. Thanks again and enjoy your week.